It's Thursday, September 16th, and you are listening to the 12th episode of Combing the Stacks. We are a music podcast covering six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each week, we dig into the top 100 albums of the 1960s, as identified by our friends at the website besteveralbums.com. Your hosts are the rough and ready trio of John, Josh, and Matt. This week, we'll be covering albums number 68, 65, and 63, as the leaves begin to turn colors and the countdown moves toward the midway point. This week's selections range from folk to funk to jazz in a genre-spanning CTS that has something for everyone. We start things off with Matt covering the album Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time by the folk rock duo of Simon and Garfunkel. The 1966 record was the duo's third studio album, and this will be the first time we cover them on CTS. Our second segment has John getting funky with the 1969 album Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. The album was recorded three months prior to their famous Woodstock performance and contains some of their most enduring hits. In our final segment, Josh takes his second dive into the work of John Coltrane. He'll cover John Coltrane's breakthrough 1960 album Giant Steps, which consistently ranks as one of jazz's most influential albums. Grab something pumpkin spice and a light jacket and join us on the hayride that is the podcast. From the moment of my birth to the instant of my death, there are patterns I must follow just as I must breathe each breath. Like a rat in a maze, the path before me lies, and the pattern never alters until. September 17th, 2020, and you are listening to Combing the Stacks podcast with John, Josh, and Matt. Matt, how are you this week? I'm doing all right. I'm a little busy with work, busier than I've been in months, so I'm a little tired, but uh, I'm ready to go here. I'm ready to, ready to rock this out. Gotcha. I'm sure our listeners are real excited to hear about what's going on at work for you right there. To, to they are in. not. They yeah. are definitely not. <laughs> That's a bonus episode all on its own. Absolutely. And Josh, it, by now, people have just heard the dulcet tones of your voice with your new microphone. How are you doing besides that? I feel like Christian Slater and pump up the volume. It's awesome. Do you oh, I'm have... supposed to see that movie soon. I haven't seen that yet. I oh, heard it's... good things about it. Yeah, I like it. It's good. It's good stuff. It's no gleaming the cube, but it's good stuff. So No, a little bit later yes. than that. A little bit later. A little bit later. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this episode. Um, we have three really interesting albums this week would you would you guys agree with that assessment yes i i liked all three of these albums this week actually 
Ooh, Josh giving an early spoiler in early, terms early of the take bus. from Josh. Yeah, the hottest. I think we always. Take. I think we always have interesting albums at the. You know, have we had a week where we're like, "Yeah, these albums are kind of boring." Nah, yeah. If no. we, I, I felt that way. I mean, that maybe not boring, but I've definitely felt some weeks are more exciting than others. But this week was, there was definitely um, a variety in terms of what we were listening to this week, which is always a good thing when you're trying to break up the sometimes yes. monotony of COVID life, right? Absolutely. Gotcha. All right. So to interject a little bit of energy here at the beginning, cleaning the attic is normally always where we interject the energy. I know Matt always has something for cleaning the attic. And always. I'm guessing that n- this I'm week is no different. I'm a stickler for details, John. I'm very uh, much into the details. Then I am going to shut up nice and early this week, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Matt, and let you clean the attic already. So, so I'm cleaning the stacks. So, John, we, remember, we're not cleaning oh, the attic. Gosh. Cleaning is, is, is oh. another is another section. We have to we have to. Make Josh, just edit just edit everything out of that right there. Gosh, <laughs> make me sound better than I am. I have, yeah, I, we do. We I don't know uh, why we combined combings on different things. You know what I'm, I mean? That was I'm, just a rare I'm, moment of non ingenuity. I'm gonna hold up cue cards for you. Yeah, you can that would help. That. John's really got a busy should. job. That's it's a lot to handle. So <laughs> you really should. My my hosting has just gone down the toilet over the last couple of weeks. So I'll have to, you know, I can't even make up with it with my sex appeal because it is just a voice right now. So I have to rely on. Once you, know, you get that new mic, John, that'll all turn around, though. Listen, how I sexy have, Josh sounds. He's easy. See, and I was about to say I'm using the new mic right now, so that should show that even more so. You know how I'm uh, struggling right now. So Josh is just, you know, Josh just has a better mic than I do. So he does. Yeah. All right. Clean. Go ahead and all go right. ahead and clean. I'm cleaning these these stacks. So first, so I'm going to go back a couple of weeks because there was something I was supposed to clean. I'm, I'm going to clean the clean stacks because I want to talk about Dusty Springfield. I totally forgot. And super fan Kevin, friend of the pod, Kevin, reminded me that I did know a Dusty Springfield song other than Son of a Preacher Man through the White Stripes cover of I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself on their mm-hmm. album Elephant, mm-hmm. which I, I think it was one of those things that I knew about, but did not register at all when we did the Dusty Springfield week. So props to Kevin for pointing that out because that's definitely true. I also true. believe that is Elephant, Matt, is the name of that album. Well, why do they spell it like Elephant? Yeah, the French, the French it's pronunciation not of Elephant. Yeah, not Elephant. Like OPs. That's, yeah, we got to, <laughs> our pronunciations are done. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Black Eyed Peas not in the top 100 of either the 2000s or 2010s, which I'm sure is disappointing to at least one or two listeners. It has to be. They're in the top 100 of my heart. But and I, I still will also. <laughs> I'm sure they are, Josh. <laughs> well, with songs, you know, like Fergalicious, how could they not be, right? And uh, and Matt, I will also challenge you. There is no way that you don't know that Dusty Springfield song that I sang semi poorly in that episode. I do know way. that song too. Yeah. Yes, yes. So now that, you that's know. True. Now you know at least. Three. I know three in addition to the album we did. Absolutely. Um, also wanted to throw in there. We were talking about Woodstock last week and Credence playing Woodstock. Um, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, I neglected to mention, were invited to play Woodstock, but surprise, they declined. Um, and I was actually, I was, wasn't surprised that they declined, but I was surprised that they were invited. Um, so he wanted no part of that. Also, some personal stacks to clean. The CCR Chronicle album that I owned that we talked about, where I could not I could not under uh, remember if it was my brother or my father's record. My brother, Superfan Mike, brought to my attention. Brother Mike, maybe. Kind of like Brother Muzone <laughs> from The Wire, except less violent <laughs> and uh, less well-learned. More games. Um, yeah. Yeah. So he <laughs> let me know that he bought that record for my father for Christmas. 
So there was, I was kind of right, but, um, and was I guess Chronicle my dad, one it Chronicle 1 or 2? Because there's two one. of them. Okay. It was Chronicle 1, and I, I believe I found it just laying in my brother's room. So my dad, I don't know, I think he was more of a Fogarty, John Fogarty solo fan than he was a CCR fan, because I remember him having Centerfield and Eye of the Zombie um, <laughs> listening to <laughs> those records. Such an odd preference. <laughs> you know, there's CCR right here, but I'm just going to go with the Fogarty classic, the, the singles. <laughs> I haven't heard any single John Fogarty before. Oh, yes, you, oh, yes, you heard Centerfield. You Centerfield. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that yeah. song. I bet you don't know Eye of the Zombie, though, um, which as a little kid looking at that album cover is quite terrifying. Um, so, and a couple of things. Josh, you had mentioned that CCR had three albums released in the same year, 1968 or 69. I don't remember which one, but... 69. Yep. 69, okay. So you also made the comment that the Beatles never had three albums that were released in the same year. And while that is true, there were several, there were at least two occasions where they had three albums released in the span of 12 months. Hmm. So if you look from, uh, and it's actually, both of them are just under the wire because the Beatles for Sale album number four was released on December 4th, 1964. Then it was followed by Help and then Rubber Soul, which was released on December 3rd, 1965. So they came in just under 365 days to do three albums in 12 months. Um, right. And then if they there's did one it thing this podcast needed, it's more Beatles. Then they did it again, John. Even more Beatles. They did it again because Beatles, uh, because Help was released August fourth, nineteen sixty four. Then they did Rubber Soul and Revolver was August fifth. Um, August uh, actually August uh, the day before that, August third, nineteen sixty six. So you have two occasions where they had it just in, in within a year. So close, but, yes. But you know, twelve months is still a year. Not by um, Gregorian calendar rules. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, my last stack to clean john had mentioned that tammy terrell sang mm-hmm. with otis redding was did duets with otis redding in well the and podcast. marvin gay too but yep mm-hmm. it, it, but you, i think you meant marvin gay because that's when my wife heard that when you know she oh no said, she, he did I, both he did both she did but both. ain't no mountain high enough wasn't that with mm-hmm. marvin gay it was yep, yeah, yeah i, I think missed, you said I otis redding. there you are yep. correct ain't no mountain high enough should have been marvin gay but she did duet with both of them gotcha mm-hmm. so um that's it that's what i got I have a cleaning the sacks that, or cleaning the, uh, uh, yeah, cleaning the sacks. Sorry, uh, yeah, I'm like mixing it all up. But I have one as well that just came up, uh, just for our listeners. There are some bands besides the Beatles in the '60s, so I did want to put that out there for our listeners. <laughs> there that are, I think we're a, covering a couple of them that today. Is, yeah, yeah, that is a cleaning the stacks that's out there. So in case you were wondering, there are episodes and there, are, you know, that don't have the Beatles, and there are bands that aren't the Beatles in the '60s. So I did want to put that out there for clarification's sake. They do, yeah. they do pop up a lot though. We have a mm. lot of we have a lot of back catalog you can listen to to hear some of those bands. You know they kind of pop up on this podcast like you know conspiracies do at like a John Birch con- you know convention. You know they yeah. they're kind of they're kinda, that's not that's necessarily on the agenda, but they're going to happen at some point. I feel that's like you're you know with the Beatles, Matt. That's kind of with you. We're not going to talk about the Beatles necessarily on the agenda, but they're going to come up at some point. They're going to come up every week. Yeah, exactly. Beatles Josh, quarter. do you have Beatles Corner? Do you have any cleaning to do? Uh, I don't, actually. I'm, okay. I'm clean again. And I do not believe I have any from last week as well. So, um, yeah. And I actually am glad we're going to have a little bit of extra time because, like I said, I think these three albums are going to generate quite a lot of conversation today. We're going to start with uh, Simon and Garfunkel, 
parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, which I have to admit when we saw that one, I said, God, that's the most Simon and Garfunkel title for an album ever, isn't it right there? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Uh, and so we're going to cover that. Matt's going to handle that. Then we're going to do Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. And then we are going to take some giant steps, i.e. the name of the album, Giant Steps by John Coltrane, as our final segment. So we're going to go back to him for a second time. You guys ready to just delve right in? I think this is the quickest we're ever going to get to the albums in the pod. Let's do it. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's turn it over to Matt. It's all yours, man. All right, so we're going to cover Simon and Garfunkel here. This track that you heard, the snippet that you heard at the very beginning of the podcast, was from the song Patterns. And now we're going to hear a little clip from the opening track to the uh, record, which is Scarborough Fair, Canticle. Scarborough Fair Parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme Remember me to one who lives there She once was a true love of mine All right, so there you go. That's Scarborough Fair Canticle from Simon and Garfunkel's 1966 release, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. It comes in at number 65 on our list here. Can I admit something real quick, Matt? I apologize before you jump in. I'm a little bit disappointed you didn't pick the big, bright, green pleasure machine just because I was hoping you would have to say that out loud at the beginning of the can I can say it later on for you, John, if that'll that'll make you feel better. But Um, please continue. And so this was number seven in 1966 and number 537 overall. So we're going to be covering quite a bit of Simon and Garfunkel. I think just about all of their studio records, um, maybe I think with the exception of their debut album. But this is their third record. um, And we'll just do a little brief history on these guys right now. Um, They met when they were 12 years old in grade school. Paul Simon saw Art Garfunkel singing at a talent show and thought, hey, this might be a good way to meet girls. So uh, so he decided to get together with Garfunkel, and they would sing songs together, and they've actually formed a doo-wop group with three other kids, and they called themselves the Peptones. Was the performed- theory behind that that they were a music group, or that like Garfunkel, Art Garfunkel was like a... A real easy look on the eyes. What was the thought process? I'm sure it was more about the music than the look on the eyes, although I cannot confirm that because it it did not say that. But I don't know if anybody's – I don't know if he had the fro going on back then. That's a good question. I don't see any pictures of him as a 12-year-old. Art Garfunkel, Um, low-key sex symbol, I think, is what uh, – you know, I have a feeling we're going to hear from a lot of folks. Low-key 12-year-old sex symbol. Cardi B, you know, you're solo now. so (laughs) (laughs) Cardi B, you're single now. So, you know, Art Garfunkel is just waiting there for you. Um, is Cardi B single? I didn't know that. That's too bad. Yeah, she filed she her divorce papers. Oh, man. And she said yes. they were going to be together forever. Um, they ended up, uh, and they also would perform at school dances as a duo. So they did, did write a, a, a song called Hey Schoolgirl, which was overheard by a promoter named Sid Prozen, who subsequently signed the two to a record contract when they were both the, at the age of 15. So how's that for talent for you, right? Um wow. So they were under they were under the uh, record company and they assumed the name Tom and Jerry, and Art Garfunkel nicknamed himself Tom Graf, which was a reference to his love his affinity for mathematics. So um, 
What a I don't know how the girls felt uh. about that, but that's he loved math. So I'm going to go ahead and guess poorly. That's how the girls <laughs> felt about it, especially the 15-year-old girls. And Paul Simon was Jerry Landis, and he took the sur- he, he took that surname after a girl he had dated. So how how do you pick the name Jerry Landis from a girl you dated? Was she was well, Landis was Landis? her surname. He picked. They okay. were Tom and Jerry, so they, you know, oh, so they got the Tom the Jerry, and Jerry, and okay. then Graf because of maths and math, and Landis because of uh, a little. So he acted lady like he that, was married to this woman, like apparently. It, to, that's so Simon and Garfunkel. And isn't he it? did. And he didn't like math, I guess. So I guess not, not enough to name himself after <laughs> he liked, math. He liked domestic. So convoluted. Yes. It is. <laughs> yes. So um, they. Be, it did become a, the song "Hey Schoolgirl" did become a hit, um, but partly due to a payola scheme where Prozen paid DJs to play it. So there was a little bit. The DJs were getting a little taste on the other end. So that's called representation, right there, my that's friend. Exactly right. Yes. Yes. That is a good, good promoter and manager. Um, they did graduate high school. They went off to college. Uh, they continued to kind of write songs, uh, you know, and, um, and Paul Simon uh, co- did collaborate with, again, here's another name that keeps popping up, Jerry Go- Gary Goffin and uh, Carol King. I was so, going to say, is it Carol King? Oh, God, yeah. she's, she's everywhere. The amount, the royalties that they must be getting, is, it must be insane for, uh, yeah, for two I people to so. be, yeah. Um, so... Simon graduates from college in 1963, and then they all they get back together. They start performing as a duo, um, and then they caught the attention of Tom Wilson, combing the stacks trivia. Where do we know Tom Wilson from? Mm. Last week, um, he was the gentleman that signed the Mothers of Invention, okay. wow. um, trying to find the next Rolling Stones. So I was uh, say he is not one of the Wilson brothers of Beach Boys. No. Um, oh yes, so, you hit the song that sounded different than the rest, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, I don't know what it is, but it's not a blues band. Um, yeah. So, so Tom Wilson signs that, and he's much more satisfied with uh, the the, uh, the output of Simon and Garfunkel. It's more true to form, I think. Yeah, um, and this is where they auditioned a new song to get them signed with Columbia called "The Sounds of Silence." So I didn't realize that that was a song that Simon had written at such a young age. Um, so uh, eventually Simon insists on changing their name to Simon and Garfunkel, which they do, and they release their first album, which did not sell too well. So after that, Simon basically goes off to England, and he's writing and performing, and a number of the songs that appear on this record were written by Paul Simon while he was in um, England. And also some of the songs that are on here are also on his debut album. Um, so there was a little bit of crossover there. So... Uh, so that's a little history of the band. Um, this album was recorded over eight months, from December of 1965 to August of 1966, and it was a it was a longer process than their previous record, which was kind of rushed. We are going to be talking about that, and that was the sound of silence. Um, but this is the first time that the band really felt like, or the group, I should say. I don't know. If, can you call a duo like this a band? Well, they I don't think have backing so. Musicians, right? Or did they not? There, there's back, there's backing musicians on it, but I mean, they're not, it's Simon they're and Garfunkel. An act, I would call them an act, perhaps, an act. or a duo, yes. That's, that's probably, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, at what point does, is a band not a band? Um, but this act uh, took a lot more control over the production. They, you know, Paul Simon, this is the album that he really wanted to, uh, you know, control the direction of the production and where it was going. So that was something that, that, that the both of them... Uh, you know, had noted in subsequent interviews. It was uh, produced by Bob Johnston. Here's another combing the stacks trivia. Does anybody remember where Bob Johnston came? What we've what we've talked about with him before? 
Bob Dylan. Yes. He produced Bob Dylan's uh, John Wesley Harding and Nashville Skyline, and he also produced yeah. Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting you on the spot here. Um, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. Yep. yep. Leonard songs from a room. So he produced those. Are I actually, actually knew those answers. That was the first time I was ever going to be able to do your trivia there, Matt. But Josh was. Josh, yeah. I threw it to Josh. It was his record. But yeah, so Bob Johnson appears again. And actually, probably Leonard Cohen, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, and Bob Dylan are some of his most notable uh, acts that he has worked with. So um, I talked about the songs there. Uh, It's considered a breakthrough album for the duo. Some have considered this their first masterpiece. And um, Columbia executives were a little uh, perturbed by how long this took. It was an expensive album to make. And they, the, the quote that they used was, boy, you really take a lot of time to make records. And, they, um, and in fairness, there was, you know, 28 whole minutes they had to put on, you know, vinyl. So <laughs> it wasn't too long. But oddly enough, it's funny because even though it took them a long time, the bulk of the recording happened over a very short period of time. So. Um, so I don't know how much time they spent in the studio, you know, different takes and whatnot to lead up to the I'll, final cuts. But a um, lot of it might have just been them emoting, would be my guess. You so think so? That does take a lot of emoting? time. Yes, I don't I know. That doesn't so. really yep. sound right. Um, mm-hmm. But this album, uh, yeah. So we're kind of that kind of brings us up to now. Uh, so I'll kind of stop on the bio there. Let's talk about some reactions here. So Josh, what do you think? Talk to me about Simon and Garfunkel. Actually, I had a question, though, before I get into my reaction. All right. Did you, did you get a sense of how they split the work? Is it like one guy's writing the music and one's writing the lyrics? Or are they pretty collaborative? Or Simon, it, this is Paul Simon's act, okay. using John's word. This is his whole, he's doing the writing. Um, he is, you know, he's playing, he's always pretty much playing the guitar. I think he plays the harmonica a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garfunkel is attributed with some uh, credit with, Scarborough Fair because it's a traditional song but he helped with the arrangement um, but he pretty much sings he I think he plays piano on the final track the the silent night track mm. but other than that he is off to the side and he's there for his voice so that's the majority of what his role is throughout not just with this album but but throughout most of their uh, albums as well gotcha okay thank you um, I really like this album I was surprised um, all there's a lot of different sounds going on different music musical styles referenced in this song in this album um all the songs that i had not heard before you know with the i've heard the big hits like homeward bound and and scarborough fair and um but the other ones like big bright green pleasure machine that was great dangling conversation was great a simple desultory philippic which Sounds like a Dylan diss track or something. Did you get um, some vocabulary words? Did you get some SAT words in on that, Josh? Yeah, I, I had, know I had those to Google words. those. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we'll be talking lyrics during my section. Um, yeah, that was great. Uh, I, I really liked most of the songs on this album, actually. And mm-hmm. um, there was only a few that didn't really work for me, like the last song. Um, and I get what they're going for with the, the news and uh, Silent Night contrasting, but... It's a, uh, I didn't, I wasn't into it. Um, and I like all of the, you can, you can kind of already see later Paul Simon in this where he is trapped, uh, you know, experimenting with different world styles, you know, world musical genres and, and referencing different things and mixing it up. Um, uh, I thought it was great. Right on. John. 
So I'd promised myself I wasn't going to go long on any albums this week, and then you give me this one, which I feel like my answer I need to give some context on. Um, if you had said to me before the podcast, what are the three most challenging types of music for you? I would say sort of droning techno music, which Simon and Garfunkel does not fit. World music created by white people, which of course Paul Simon was a pioneer in that field. And folk music, right? Those are the three that pretty much everything else is there. However, what I've really loved about this podcast has been I listened to a Pink Floyd album and I would have multiple times and I would have told you I'm not a huge Pink Floyd fan, but I, it played it even, right? Uh, I've listened to psychedelic rock and liked some and disliked other stuff, which is an easy genre for me. And Dylan, who I'm not normally a fan of, both albums we've covered I've loved. Yeah. Um, so I was really interested in listening to Simon and Garfunkel because my, my hot take would have been, ugh, just not my thing. The first time I listened to it, I did not love this album. The second time I listened to it, I came to appreciate this album. Uh, and so I would say this is the first time I'm going to say this on Combing the Stacks. But while I personally wouldn't for myself recommend the album, I would recommend the album for others listening. Because I think there there's a large cross-section of the audience that will really like this album. Um, and it is, such a, it is such a definitive Strengths and Weaknesses album for me. Um, even down to some of the songs. The songs are either very good or just brutal to listen to for me. Um, like the last track that Josh mentioned, the Silent Night track, is like every cliche of folk and cheesy mashups mm -hmm. together. And I just groaned like listening to it and both times. Uh, the Dangling Conversation like actually had a line that said, and you read your Emily Dickinson and I read my Robert Frost. So I was like, oh God, like just, <laughs> that's just like, but there were other times where the lyrics were good. So, and that's the thing that the, the album has some tracks that to me are very profound, like Patterns is just a great song. Mm -hmm. It sounds great, great. It's atmospheric and the lyrics are good. And then there's other things, you know, I, I keep picking on the dangling conversation, but that in particular, the lyrics just were brutal. John, you know, would like, it surprise I, you to learn that that is one of the four singles on this record? Uh, no, because the music, the, the music and the sing and that's one thing I want to mention. Simon and Garfunkel have, especially Art Garfunkel, have beautiful voices. Uh, and nothing overstays its welcome, which I also appreciated. It's just I chalk this one up to folk as a different, as a, a difficult genre for me. I can appreciate how good they are at it. And I can appreciate why this album is as popular as it is and why it sort of um, falls into their transition into it being considered a masterpiece because if you were a fan of folk music of sort of I would say like emotional like there's there's not a lot of testosterone in this album you know what I mean it's definitely a very you it's know, pretty wussy album. isn't it it's, it's wuss rock right is it even if you can even call it I don't I, it's not fair I mean I don't want to say that you know when people are are sharing their emotions that they're wusses. I, I don't want to perpetuate that, but definitely it's a lot of like, I got my coffee and, you know, and then I'm thinking about the world and I was thinking about the way you sigh, you know, and it's like, it's great, but you know what I mean? After a while, it's kind of like, okay, Paul Simon, like, I get it. You know what I mean? You like, you feel so deeply about the world. So, um, so that, that's where I stand right there. I, well, I would you, say, and you're a guy that likes his loud, big guitars, too, in music a lot I of times. I do, and I, I, like, I definitely do like stuff that's, that can be 
more emotional and singer songwriter and stuff, but the folk sound, it's funny because I was reading a, a piece today with, with your boy, my, my man, whose name I always mis, uh, mispronounce and you always love when I mispronounce it, but Serfjan Stevens, right? Serfjan. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah. that. That's better. Yep. That was, I was going to say, as I always say it, but... Uh, but Who we uh, are going to cover, I believe, if I'm we not are mistaken, on mul- the, on multiple occasions. Years from Sir. now. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but um, there's a, there's a great actual piece on him in the Atlantic today, and he said, you know, I I consider myself a folk singer, but you know, after a while, you get bored, and I get tired of folk and I, folk music, and I feel like that's a little bit what it is like for me. Like when even the folk singers, like Dylan and he are saying it, I feel like the genre has its limits, right? And that's the only thing I'd say is that if you are not a fan of folk music, I don't know if this album's going to win you over to it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I. I this this seems more poppy to me this is like pop folk um or it's it's not like i don't find their emotionality or or it's not like they're proto emo or something like that um i find these this is a really breezy album to listen to and i feel like all the songs are are different enough from one another that the album pretty uh flows pretty well and there's i think there's probably something for everyone on here but i mean you will know if if everyone's heard of you know a few simon and garfunkel songs if not you know sound of silence uh, then you know scarborough fair or something but um if you like those songs you, you definitely should listen to this album oh yeah. and that's why and that's why i say like i i would recommend this to most people listening i i tried to draw a distinct line between the album itself and the art and sort of my personal opinion on this one and it's the first time that's ever happened with me you know where it's like my personal taste and my appreciation of the art deviated a little bit i think that's kind of how i felt about big brother and the holding company you know it's like yeah. a, you know a recognition of this isn't my thing i never did anything for me that much but i can see why people like this and if you know this can totally be your thing and i think that's you know that's well fair. and that's interesting because that's janice joplin making like testosterone driven rock and this yeah. is like two dudes making sort of like estro rock yeah yeah they yeah i don't even i don't even i really hesitate to even call this rock you know it's just it's and my comment of it being wussy was not like a you know i i like wussy stuff you know i like you know the the, the folk stuff and the uh you know um you know quieter music and and i i agree i think that i, I with with josh i think there's a lot of good stuff on here you know i pretty much just knew the singles um because again like many of these artists i only had their greatest hits records so, you know, I knew Scarborough Fair, Homeward Bound, 59th Street Bridge, um, and I didn't know the dangling conversation. And actually, I didn't, that was probably, aside from maybe the last track, because I agree with you guys, the 7 o'clock news, you know, it's a little, it's, especially nowadays, like, it's very pretentious. It's a little heavy-handed, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, 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 it's essentially a little. Singing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, God, it's like slaps you over the head, heavy-handed. And it's just like, here's Silent Night. It's a beautiful rendition of Silent Night, which is, and I do like that song. That's a great, that's a beautiful song. But then you just have this voiceover of news reporter telling you all these horrible events about, mm-hmm. you well, know, it's Walter Cronkite, Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, it's actually not. It's it's actually the, the voice is, is uh, radio DJ Charlie O'Donnell. Is it really? Okay, yeah, wow. it's not Walter Cronkite. Cronkite. Wow. Um, and good, actually, good to be corrected. While while we are on this, let's let's clean the stacks of this track because there are three factual inaccuracies in this track. Um, Lenny Bruce was not 42 <laughs> when he died. He was 40. 
they said he was 42 in that in that in, in that dialogue. Uh, when they talked about the mur- nurses being murdered, there were uh, there were eight murdered, not nine. And Nixon's speech that this reference was actually given to the American Legion, not the VFW. So let's make you know, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel were definitely not cleaning their stacks back in the day. They don't um, care. They're just writing to the music. <laughs> but yeah, so I did. So that's like all right. I guess I guess I could see at the time. You know, I mean, this is 1966, so. A very tumultuous, you know, the, the very beginnings of a very tumultuous time, tumultuous time in America. So, and that was kind of the thing, right? Lots of protest stuff. So I get that it 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 really doesn't age well, <laughs> and maybe it never, maybe it never was, uh, you know, a good yeah. thing, you know, for people. As but. a as a Dylan guy, what do you think of the discount Dylan song? I think I believe Josh called it oh. like a Dylan call, a diss track or a Dylan yeah. call out. I yeah, looked at it, it was, as like discount Bob. It's so jarring too because yeah. you have these beautifully. Like I said, the sound of the out. If you love people whose voices are rich, I can't take that away from Simon and Garfunkel. It's beautiful. Uh, and then suddenly it's like, what the hell are they trying to do here with this Bob Dylan? And I'm, when we're talking Bob Dylan, we're not talking like the Bob Dylan the Bob Dylan that we've covered, right? In the late 60s, we're talking right. like classic, like, you know, once upon a time, use my mind. But like with with him having gone electric also. Yeah, this is, so it's like an early Dylan song with electric behind it. It was yeah, really this weird. Is like, um, this is coming right off the heels of something like, uh, I think it was, uh, you know, Subterranean Homesick Blues, mm-hmm. um, you know, right when the, the period where Dylan was going electric in the mid 60s. But yeah, it's as soon as I heard it, I, my initial thought was, well, they're working with Tom Wilson, who, wor- who did a lot of those records with Dylan, the the electric albums with Dylan, I believe. And so I thought that that was kind of like his influence kind of coming in there saying, Hey, let's try something like this. Um, but yeah, you listen to it and it's very, it's just, it's totally him. I mean, we've talked about people Can trying I, to uh... do Dylan before, like, like Lennon was trying to do Dylan with, you've got to hide your love away. Right. This is oh, totally but... different. And this is like, this is him mocking Dylan, right? Yeah, this is right. him. It is, right. Look, listen to the lyrics. He's referencing Dylan lyrics. Um, mm-hmm. He's he, the cadence that he uses when he's not really singing. He's just kind of calling things out. It's, it's totally Dylan, right? It's in, um, is so he, yeah, is, this is was a it a mocking? Was, oh, yes. was it a parody? I was gonna say because yeah. it's yeah yeah. There's that one line in there about like when they say Dylan, he thinks of Dylan Thomas or something to that effect. Yeah, um, he he yeah. does. It's he's so unhip that when you say Dylan, he thinks you're talking about Dylan Thomas, which yeah. is why I thought it was making fun of Bob Dylan fans. But let's be honest, like Simon and Garfunkel have no audience if there's no Bob Dylan. So it it was really weird to me because yeah, it's like, dude, he's the reason you're on Columbia Records. You know, yeah. Sound of Silence doesn't get released without you know, Dylan and Dylan would be the first to say that he doesn't exist without like Woody Guthrie. Right. Yeah. I didn't see anything more. And maybe this is something I can look into for next week, but I didn't see anything more about any rift or anything, you know, uh, problems that, you know, Paul Simon had with Dylan or anything like that. I think, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if he wasn't a fan of what he was doing with the electric stuff. And he just said, Hey, I could do that. Like, let me just, I don't know. Paul Simon's kind of a goofy guy too. I mean, he's, he was, a, you know, he was a big fan, a uh, big friend of uh, Lauren Michaels. So he did a lot of SNL stuff. Some yeah, funny he's on SNL there. all the time. You know, when he did that, you can call me Al video with uh, Chevy Chase back in the eighties. You know, that was kind of a funny, you know, he's a goofy guy. So he likes to poke fun at stuff. So I don't know if I, I it's probably more of him just like goofing around rather than any real, holding any real animosity, you know, towards he, he Dylan does, of any kind. He does have a good sense of humor. I mean, he did make a whole album of African music in the 1980s called Graceland, which I would say is one of the most humorous <laughs> albums of all time. So, 
Hey, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't even know if we're doing any Paul Simon single stuff, solo stuff. Off the I, top I have head, a question but, for you guys. How many yeah. how many herb combinations do you think they went through when they were naming <laughs> this album? And also, what are, what are how much did that line get stuck in my head all week? By <laughs> yeah. the way, it's just like parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Like it's yeah. just it was embedded in my head. Yeah. What's wrong with basil? Exactly. I started thinking what what four herbs would I put in my if I named my album? Cilantro, what were they? Okay. Basil, cilantro, yeah, um, cumin. I'm not a fan of any of these four mm. herbs, actually. <laughs> <laughs> parsley is lame. I do parsley is like, what's the use of that? My uncle's a chef, and we're like, what do you use parsley for? He goes, nothing. It doesn't taste like. You know, if they were kind of as edgy as Lenny Bruce, who they mentioned all the time, wouldn't it have been like parsley, sage, rosemary, and pot or something. You know what I mean? To yeah. make it kind of funny. Oh, mint, but nope. mint. I like mint a lot. Yeah, I'm more of like <laughs> Asian herb variety, I guess. <laughs> We, so things I never thought I'd know. Josh's favorite herbs in his yeah. spice <laughs> Uh Yeah, but I would say too. Um, I wasn't a fan of the dangling conversation. You know, Paul side. But there was con- conflicting reports of whether you know, that one report said that that was both of their favorite song, uh, their, their favorite song on this record. But I also read that Garfunkel always hated it and thought it was pretentious. Um, Simon was felt found it disappoint. It's disappointing that it didn't do any better on the charts it and sounds like it was, a paul simon song so yeah I, that doesn't surprise well they're all me, paul yeah. simon songs i mean the, yeah this is, i'm just saying know, like later work paul simon it, yeah. it very much screams yeah he said it might have been too heavy for a mainstream audience so too um, heavy yeah that's okay what like heavy and but obviously not in the <laughs> not musically lyrically probably but if you want a heavy version of patterns john and Josh, for, for anybody that's a metalhead, there's yep. actually a, a metal band called, I've never heard of these guys, Warrell Dane or Warrell Dane. Mm-hmm. It's a good covered, song, too. Who covered patterns on their 2008 record, Praises to the War Machine. So and I listened to it. It sounds nothing like the, it's the, awesome. the Simon and Garfunkel. And it is awesome. That yep. is tr- and the album cover is pretty cool, too. And the, um, the, the Simon and Garfunkel song is very good, too. It's probably my second favorite track on the album, uh, yeah, Patterns, behind it's, it's very uh, the good. 59th Street Bridge song. Oh, that was your favorite? Yes. Simon called that. He hated that song, apparently. Well, I, I don't like Paul Simon's solo work, so it totally makes sense. Makes sense. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I actually thought with patterns, I thought it was interesting. I was looking at the instruments that were being used on this record, and it sounds like with the bongo drums, it's and, and the way the guitar is being played, it sounds like a you know an Indian like instrumental That's kind of sitar thing. Yeah. Um, but it's not. There's no mention of a sitar, at least on Wikipedia. So I'm, I'm guessing it was just a, a guitar effect. But um, yeah, I, I there wasn't much. I think dangling conversation in the last track. I think were the only ones I really didn't care for too much. But uh, there's some upbeat stuff, and I will say it now. The uh, what is it? The great green, the big bright green pleasure machine is a fun song. It's a very upbeat, you know, a danceable song. A lot of these songs too were actually put on the graduate soundtrack, which I'll probably talk about in another uh, Simon and Garfunkel episode because yeah. they were featured prominently on the graduate, um, you know, soundtrack around this time. And so they, the, some of these songs were featured in that film. Um, but I, I really like Simon and Garfunkel. Um, you know, I my my wife was making the complaint. She's like, "Oh God, are we have to listen to Simon and Garfunkel for the entire week." And I was like, "They're not. They're, what are you talking about?" And then she, I'm like, "What about Cecilia?" She goes, "Oh yeah, that's a good song, right?" And so I listened yeah, to like three or four songs. songs. She's like, "Okay, they're pretty good." I was like, "Yeah, they're pretty good. Like, don't lump them with like you know James Taylor or something like that. You know, like I I think that uh, they they branch but out they, a little bit." In fairness to James Taylor, they are cousins. You may like Simon and Garfunkel better, but they do the same yeah. thing. Definitely. 
that's yeah, more I, of a personal thing for me. I don't mean to uh, I don't mean to to dump on this album. There's a lot of good songs. Patterns is good. Homeward Bound. You probably it's one of those songs you may not recognize the name of it now, but the second you hear it, you'll know it. Yeah. I like I said the the 59th Street Bridge song. I thought was kind of a cool idea. Um, there's a lot to even Scarborough Fair. Scarborough Fair Canticle is good. That's a pretty uh, song. Like a, like I said, some of the songs actually are very good um, lyric-wise, in my opinion, too. Like I, Cloudy's a, a good song um, lyrically. Uh, yeah, there's there's some, but then there's ones that are just like just made me groan. What and did you so, think of For Emily, Wherever I May Find Her? We haven't talked about that yet. Is there any any thoughts on that from either of you? Uh, as a song, it just was kind of there. Um, okay. It didn't stand out compared to the earlier stuff. Lyrically, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, while Josh is talking, <laughs> I'll find some stuff. It sounded it. There was something in it that made me think of David Bowie. Um, some I don't know if it was the way he was singing or some kind of musical uh, notes or something, but it made well, me think it, of that. It features lyrics like "What a dream I had, pressed in organdy, clothed in crinoline of smoky burgundy." So that should give you an idea, kind of, of you know. Well, it's uh, I the like reason I ask too. is the reason I ask is because that's a lot of uh, it's it's widely considered one of Garfunkel's best vocal performances. Um, it is. And, it's beautiful. His yeah, singing. he he really shines on that. And that that's where that's where his. I mean, he's great with the harmonies, but songs like this, uh, "Bridge Over Troubled Water," where it's just him doing yep. solo, his his voice is is outstanding. And this is this has been um, this this is one of the songs that that are kind of that's brought up when you're talking about great yep. you know, vocal performances by by the act. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I saw that, and it's been covered by a lot of people as well including red hot chili peppers john frusciante in red hot chili wow. peppers concerts so hmm. i don't i didn't see anything more about that i don't know if he's actually singing it or if he's just playing a guitar rendition of it i didn't i don't think he sings much with the red hot chili peppers so if he does that would be an amazing challenge to take on to sing that song because it is quite complex musically but and, lyrically yeah. yeah it's probably a little bit more ridiculous well, and, but and that's the strength to me of the album is that the compositions of the song that simon does i have to give him credit they they don't like i yeah. said they don't overstay their welcome and they're really masterfully done and art both of their voices are great in their harmonies but art garfunkel's in particular you can i can yeah. always pick his out and he does have a beautiful voice so two pluses for the album so yeah, I, I like it a lot. Um, uh, this, and I agree with Josh. Like the stuff I knew, I was like, oh, this is great. And interestingly, the the live the the um, the greatest hits album that I had, pretty much all the songs on on here uh, from this album that are on the greatest hits were all done were all live versions. So if you mm. if you're familiar with the greatest hits album, the renditions of something like Forever Emily Wherever I May Find Her, um, the 59th Street Bridge, Homeward Bound, those were live on that record. So this is kind of like a different take on it. So that was it was even though I knew the songs, it was a different production, um, you know, type of production. So that was a little different. But yeah, the songs I didn't know, I, I liked. Um, even the Dylan that's mocking the Dylan song, it's like, well, if I'm going to listen to this, I want to listen to Dylan. But it's still it's not bad. I mean, it's you know, it sounds like a Dylan song, you know. So uh, I guess that can't be. That that can't be bad. Also, every um, every song on this album is very short, so if you don't like something, it is. it's like over before you know it. Like many of the yep. albums that we're covering, are either short album or short songs. Um, but yeah, I, I have a feeling I'm gonna like other their other albums that we cover maybe better, or maybe at least one or two of them better. But uh, no, I think this is a this is a good record and it was some some good finds, so uh, I would recommend it. Same strong strong Simon and Garfunkel entry. I recommend it for the listener while not personally loving it. That would be my take. 
So never going back to it, John. Yeah, um, it's okay. I don't know if I dislike it that much. I just, you know, I just don't find myself. There's so much music, Matt, as you yeah. say often. It's just I don't know if I would go back to folk albums. But I will say yeah. listening to it twice did make me appreciate it more than if I just listened to it once. And that's what I love about this show because I don't think I would have listened to it twice yeah. if we weren't doing I the think, show and I picked up some things. Yeah, and I would I would say I think for me anyway, I think it's hard to really take in an entire album once and be able to say definitively. I, I, I don't oh, know. I think that sure. I'm going to challenge you on that with Stand by Sly and the Family Stone, our next segment, Matt, because that one immediately gave me a take that I don't think I deviated from. Well, there but you go. go. So let's yep. go right into that, John. Let's do it. Yeah. So I don't know if you could pick a much more different album for the second segment than Stand by Sly and the Family Stone than the Simon and Garfunkel album, which I listened to back to back, which I would, I would recommend that you do if you're doing it, especially on a night when you're looking for a, an interesting cognitive challenge. Because while Simon and Garfunkel have you know, immaculately crafted short folk songs, Sly and the Family Stone have sort of bombastic, you know, uh, eclectic, riff-heavy bass funk uh, that is all over the place. And definitely there are some tracks that walk the line between overstaying their welcome and being just perfect. Uh, and I probably should identify what's in the different segments to start. Uh, before this segment, in fact, right now, I think we're going to go ahead and play probably the most known song on this album, Everyday People. And in the montage, we had Sing a Simple Song. We got to live together. So we're back. Um, gosh, Sly and the Family Stone is a f just a it's one of those bands that I'm going to really limit myself in the bio because the bio is fascinating and tragic and unlike any other band in the 60s really at all. Um, but before I go into that, what was your familiarity, guys, with Sly and the Family Stone? Because I would say for me, I knew a lot about Sly and the Family Stone in terms of their songs, but very little about them as an artist. And so it was an interesting deep dive for me. I don't think I knew anything about them. I mean, I don't know anything about them. And I only know everyday people. And this whole album was oh, wow. okay. fresh for me other than that. Gotcha. Yeah, I'd say the same. And I'd probably go a little bit further. I would say that everyday people is one of those songs that's, I, I don't know how many commercials it's been on. It's just yeah. a ubiquitous yeah. song. So I would, but I would also say that even though I was very familiar with that song, before this record, if you would have asked me last week who sings everyday people, I don't know tell. if I could come up wow. with it. I might have okay. said Arrested Development, you know, because mm. uh, I think they covered it. But um, I, would, I wouldn't have been sure. Yeah, they took. They took it basically. They did a sample almost of it in many right. ways, not in the rap sense, but sort of in a similar type of deal, taking the chorus. Um, so yeah, I, like I said, I know a lot about their songs, but I didn't know much about the band. Boy, you want to talk about an interesting bio? I don't know if we'll do one in the '60s that's more interesting than Sly and the Family Stone. Let me give you a little bit though about why Sly and the Family Stone is important. They're really considered to be the first band rock band that is, comprised of both men and women, people of all colors, integrated rock band. There's two female members of the group. There's a mix of white and black members of the group. Uh, there are three siblings in the group, Sly Stone and his brother and sister. 
uh, they are considered to be one of the first acts to play what we would know as funk music, um, along with James Brown, who we covered last week. So it's kind of interesting timing because we covered him. Uh, but they're not just funk. They're soul, R&B, they're psychedelic rock. There's heavy riffs in here, R&B, and sort of the idea, this album is sort of their masterpiece because it takes all of that together and also adds in the political lyrics that people associate with funk, but that didn't exist in funk before this album. So when you think funk music, a lot of times there are themes of togetherness and political political tinges in the lyrics, but really it was this and things, uh, Say It Loud and Say It Proud by James Brown, you know, I'm black and I'm proud. That's when you started getting those political images uh, in the music. Um, This would also be considered their last upbeat album afterwards sly stone pretty much gets gripped by drugs and never gets away from them and becomes increasingly more paranoid the music becomes darker and uh the the next album and albums throughout the 70s are very very different listens in fact it's it's jarring to listen to the 70s stuff it's still very very good but it is a much darker um version of funk than this is um, and it's not like um, when people think of funk, like Parliament Funkadelic and even James Brown's 70s funk that still stays upbeat. It's a very different type of funk. Um, think like Marvin Gaye at his most um, his most depressed kind of in terms of the tone, but in a funk uh, format. Um, but yet yeah, very quickly, Sly Stone was born in Texas in 1944 and his family moved to San Francisco in the 50s. While out there, he studied music composition and theory and learned how to play the trumpet at junior college. During this time, ready for this, guys? He was a disc jockey. He was a musical arranger. He played in bands himself, and he also produced various albums wow. for both rock, garage rock acts and R&B acts. So he was on outside of merchandising right he was basically on all ends of of music um, production of music yeah he was basically yeah. doing it fame also came pretty quick to him once he decided he wanted to pursue it in 1966 he forms a group called the stoners which is you know has double meaning his last name as well as you know of the times uh and it actually featured uh trumpeter cynthia robinson who would be the only person who would come with him to the band that he formed called sly and the family stone and Sly and the Family Stone is his brother, as well as his sister Rosie. Jerry Martini and Greg Erico are the two white members of the group. They play sax and drums, respectively. And then there is also Larry Graham Jr. playing the bass. Um, and one thing you guys will notice in this is the slap bass technique of funk. Guess what? There was no slap bass technique before Sly and the Family Stone. So you're listening to Larry Graham Jr. create slap bass on this album, pretty much. Glad he did um, that. Yep, and I, I, you know who else is glad? People like Flea, because he yes. basically plays slap bass continuously for the Chili Peppers. Um, they had a local hit with I Ain't Got Nobody, which you probably would be familiar with. Um, some people may know it from the David Lee David Roth cover Roth. of it in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, Crazy yes. from the Heat. <laughs> yep, mm-hmm. And then, uh, but after, it's interesting because they had three albums before this, um, and one of them was successful, and two of them were very not successful. Uh, they have I Ain't, Got, uh, I Ain't Got Nobody as a single, and they sign with Epic Records. Uh, they do a whole new thing, which doesn't do well. They then do Dance to the Music, which basically was an album built around the 
the song Dance to the Music, which you guys probably would know if I said Dance to the Music, you know, that song. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that before. Pretty famous song that, you know, is often played at weddings and things like that if you go to the right wedding. But uh, they basically created an <laughs> album around that. Yeah, I didn't do a very good well, job of singing it. I don't it. think we yeah. played it at my wedding. Was my wedding not the right wedding, John? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's like for <laughs> older, fo- older folks, you know what I mean? They grew up with Sly and the Family Stone, you know? It's kind of like how Casey and the Sunshine Band, you know, at one point, you know, if you kind of came of age in the 70s, right, you play Casey and the Sunshine Band, but you're not going to be playing it at your wedding, you know, unless you're mm-hmm. playing it ironically or for the old people, right? So anyway, that's a little uh, thing there. So they, they do another album before this called Life. It really struggles. Uh, but then they, they release this album and it ends up at number 13 on the charts and spends over 100 weeks there in total. And uh, during this time also, they played the Harlem Cultural Festival, which is sometimes known as the Black Woodstock. And then they played Woodstock later. And actually their performance at Woodstock is a well, when you were uh, talking about earlier, Matt, I was going to say, boy, it's timely that you say that because Sly and the Family Stone really, much like Santana, but even more so, their performance at Woodstock uh, is one of the most talked about performances. They're a great live band. And unfortunately, then Sly Stone's drug use basically hits heavy. He gets addicted to cocaine. He starts to have health issues due to his drug use. He becomes involved with the law. He's very disenchanted with the death of the civil rights movement. And on this album, you hear a lot of songs about unity and people working together. And even the band Ethos was there. He became very disenchanted with that idea afterwards. So it's kind of a sad deal. And that's... So this sort of serves as the, the absolute peak of this idea of a utopian funk music for all before it pretty quickly changes into something else. But I don't really want to get into that. I kind of want to talk about this album because I thought this album was awesome. Holy cow, was Agreed. this a great album. It was awesome. Ugh, Josh, go ahead. I've talked a lot. but I love. I am disappointed to hear that there's no you know other Sly albums like this because this does sound like a culmination or is because I love the funk. We haven't heard that yet on the, on the podcast. Um, I love the, all the breakdowns that are in the album. I love how they all different family members are singing and, you know, switching off and four vocalists. And then Cynthia mm-hmm. Robinson is a fifth because she ad lives the directions to the crowd. So, yeah, that's a really uh, fresh, like, fun thing to hear when everyone's switching off i like the i love a 13 minute song called sex machine i can get behind that song it's not boring you know there's there's always something new going on in it and it's it's really fun to listen to i just i love the breakdown in the opening track that's great um and oh the harmonica too and i want to take you higher that's great and all these songs are great um mm-hmm. everyday people i kind of felt like matt like i heard that song so much i almost skipped it when when i was listening <laughs> to the album yeah because i was like i don't want to waste my time but i i did listen end up listening to it um not you that it's know a bad what... song it's just so popular or played out yeah. did you know one thing because it is funny how that it's like kind of like like a rock by bob Seeger that it's mm-hmm. a good song but it gets played so much that you start to think of it as the commercial. But do you know what famous phrase was coined by Sly and the Family Stone during that song? No. Did you guys catch that? 
Different Strokes for Different Folks was a, song, was a, was a lyric that oh. they created that was the beginning of people saying that. And the classic 80s show, Different Strokes. Yep. What you talking about, Josh? <laughs> Which, when you think about it, kind of did some of the same concepts, right? Of an yeah, integrated yeah. sort of, yeah. Uh, racial harmony, you know. I think you Gary can... Coleman got into the drugs, too. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, and Todd other Bridges podcast. as well, yeah. yeah. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and the other girl, too. They were all druggies. Yeah. Dana Plato. Dana Plato, uh, yeah. But, yeah, back to this album. Uh, I thought it was great. What else can I say about it? Let's pass it to Matt while I think of something else to say. Yeah, this, John, you, you are right when you said you were going to challenge me on I need to listen to Al multiple times before forming an opinion. That's not exactly what I meant, but it, yeah, because <laughs> automatically I started, I had this, the headphones on, I went out to walk my dog, and I, like, it wasn't even down the block yet, and I was dancing, you know, because yeah. it's just, it's, it's just, it's catchy, right? And it's mm-hmm. just, and it's fun, and it's upbeat. I agree. I like the variety. There's like hand claps in here. And Josh, I, I love the harmonica yes. too that Josh was talking about. You know, they throw the horns in there. They got the funky bass. They got the guitar. It's just, it's lively. Um, it hits you right away. And yeah, it was great. And I think that, um, th- th- I wouldn't say there's anything in here I didn't like. I think there was stuff in here that I liked more. I think I want to take you higher and I, I and it is a standout track for me. And I think I agree with you, Josh, the, the breakdown of the end of the first the opening track stand is fantastic. And mm-hmm. I'm very upset that they didn't hang that out longer. Like that's something they could, they could have gotten down with another five minutes and that would have been fine by me. Um, and yeah, just really catchy, great stuff. It's it's it's. I don't know how you can listen to this and not feel something. You know, um, I would say that the the thirteen almost fourteen minute sex machine is. I, I like it. It's for me. It was a little too long. I think you could probably cut it in half. Um, I, I I wouldn't say that I got bored by it, but I also didn't feel like it needed to be that long. Like I said, I think like the you could have ended stand much and had that go much longer than yeah. than the sex. Well, I'll give you song. I'll give you a hint as to why that song stretched out a little bit longer than the rest of the Because that's what Sly did in the bed. Well, it was designed to be sort of a tribute to an act, right? And so the 13 minutes and 46 seconds of it, as opposed to, say, the 2 minutes and 22 seconds of everyday people, I'll let our viewers and members of the the group kind of try to put two and two together as to why those lengths might be different in terms of what they were going for, in terms of the feel of the song. And that's all well and good. I just, yeah, it, it, it musically, it probably could have gone, you know, maybe half the, the amount of time. Um, so, and then there's the track two which oh, yeah. we can't even mm-hmm. say it's don't, just gotta gonna be say, like we're, we're gonna, gonna say track call, two don't call track me n- two don't call me n-word whitey yeah or, or expletive yes it's don't a very famous n- song and yeah. it's the only lyric in the song so unfortunately well, a, isn't there somebody saying something at some point there is something at the very beginning and i didn't look it up but there is what's, a lyric the some woman's saying something you know what's also something. well that's yeah that's uh, cynthia robinson sort of giving the crowd instructions we talked about but i also think it's not coincidental that the freaking bass line in that mm-hmm. song awesome. makes you get stuck in your head and unfortunately what also gets stuck in your head is the continued use <laughs> of a racial slur and that was something that was very disorienting for me like this incredible song but also the only lyric you know prominently featuring a racial slur and it all the I don't time, know if so. that word has ever gone through the my my head as much as it did this yes. past week that's, mm-hmm. I mean that song is really catchy though 
Mm, oh, well, I, I would talk about this. Like if the last album was designed to go right to your heart, you know what I mean? This goes right to your balls. Pardon my French. But like, that's what it is. It's like Stan, like right off the bat, you hear that funk riff. It's like, dun, 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 and like, boom, you're like, it sets the tone like immediately. You're like, all right, I know what this is. You know what I mean? It's it's jarring. And from there, there's just nothing but great bass lines. It, yeah, it's just hand claps. It's got that Motown stacks feel at times. Yeah, just so good. But Matt, I'm sorry it, to steal your thunder. It's like a, uh, well, that, that track two is kind of, it's not only with the bass, but it's got that, I don't know what, it's almost like a Peter Frampton, like the wah-wah kind of, is, yep. uh, whatever effect that it's they're the using. It's the distorted guitar, yep. Mm-hmm. Is that, okay, yeah, it's like, yeah. And um, so, I yeah, it was good. I'd probably say that might have been a little bit long, but um, but other than that, I mean, if that's my only critique. I, I can't really say other much, much other negative things about this. I, I like... I like this podcast for just, you know, forcing me to listen to stuff like this. This is not typically something that is in my wheelhouse or something that I'm familiar with. So um, it, it certainly ex- it expands my horizons a bit. But, um, yeah, and again, you're looking at a 40-minute album. There is a, there's a long track on here. But, you know, it's not it's, – it doesn't overstay its welcome at all. Um, it doesn't – you know, like I know I've said this before, but it's not like a, it's not a terribly dated sound or anything like that. That no, might no, be no. off putting for some people, well, like some 60s stuff. But I don't I didn't really find it that, you know, even some of the effects, it's like, OK, well, you can tell it's a little more of its time, but um, it's not invasive or uh, annoying or anything like that well, at all. And let's be honest, that's because the early work of Sly and the Family Stone like deeply influenced like the Isley Brothers and Michael Jackson and the Jacksons, and that deeply influenced later R&B and hip-hop, and then everything built off of it. So why it might sound familiar and not dated is because people have been aping this sound for forever. And interestingly, the later Sly and the Family Stone stuff, which sounds very different, and I'd urge you to check it out because I don't think we're going to be covering Sly and the Family Stone again, but that type of stuff, to give you an idea, went from influencing the Jacksons and the Isleys and people like that to influencing people like Miles Davis and Brian Eno. So to give you an idea of the shift they make. Anything else, guys, or just rush out and listen to this album? That's basically my advice to people on the podcast. Like, I, I would be... I would wonder about you if you did not at least somewhat like this album. Yeah, it's a high recommend. I don't think I don't. I, I don't I, even if it's not your thing, it's it's just yeah. You want to dance, right? It's 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 fun to listen to. Um, it's got a lot of different um, things going on, a lot of different instrumentation, the hand claps, the dancing. It's just it's upbeat, and it's sad. I'm sad to hear how things how poorly things went later on because it is a lot of the messages, a lot of positive stuff, um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, we didn't really touch. I know John mentioned how the integration of, you know, political messages and, and and commentary into the album. We didn't talk about that too much, but um, it is all. It's it is not um, detracting from the album at all, and mm-hmm. I, I find it very well done. Um, the commentary and and how it's integrated into the songs it's great would you say it is sort of the polar opposite of that silent night <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, heavy-handedness whereas this is more of the era and it, it it stays of the you know it transcends the era yeah definitely yeah yeah okay so i'd well, rather think... listen to that than that than the newspaper the, the news reporter talking about definitely i don't know <laughs>
whatever he's talking about. Killings well, in I, Vietnam or something. Yeah. yeah. Rush out, listen to this album. It's really, really good. If you don't have a lot of background in funk or if it's something you're somewhat familiar with but you've never committed to listening to it, like this is a great gateway drug to it because it's varied. There's short songs. There's longer songs. It's oh, tight. That's it's going to be familiar. Yep. That's the other thing, too. I, I, I was thinking this, too. With If you guys like... Uh, you know, uh, Sex Machine. That's kind of like a jam. It's, like, it's jammy. You know, it's like a very. It's, it's it's like a jam band kind of a song. I could see this as like at a Bonnaroo or something like that. Somebody just going with this. It is, but the instrumentation for me is a little bit more varied, which I yeah. think is why. It's, yeah, yeah, I like I like respond. I don't. I like the danceability aspect of funk. I think mm-hmm. more in the jam. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about jam stuff, versus I don't know the other more classical yeah. you know fish type of jam music fish has got some danceable funk stuff going on there we're not going to cover them but uh I mean, they you can't, definitely you can't have force, that you can't force a narrative my friend it's just it's either That's in true. your innards you, you gotta listen I mean? to like, it <laughs> i listen to sex machine and i hear it like literally i embody it and i'm like this is sly stone having sex and matt your take is sort of like eh, i'm not there you know what i mean i'm hearing this as a piece of music it's just a different visceral thing you know what i mean like i i listen to that song i'm like okay clearly this is like sly stone wanting me to step into his mind and almost like jazz right like in which I'm mm-hmm. not going to steal Josh's thunder, but that's almost like how I hear this. It's not in my head. It's like more like, okay, let me experience this viscerally in the way that like punk rock or metal and stuff does for, I think, folks that like it. You know what I mean? It hits me different. Whereas Simon and Garfunkel sort of hit me more in my head and my heart, right? This hits me in, in that place I mentioned earlier. So, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And on that note... And with that note, let's turn it over to Josh with John Coltrane. <laughs> oh, back to John Coltrane. Uh, we are talking about Giant Steps this week from 1960. This is the second John Coltrane album we talked after My Favorite Things back on episode nine, I think it was. And um, the opening track in the montage was Spiral. And now you're going to hear a little bit from Gi- the title track, Giant Steps. we're back this album i think i haven't fact checked this but this might be the earliest 1960s album that we're going to talk about um it was released on february of 1960 it's currently number 63 on besteveralbums.com now it was actually recorded uh, may 4th and 5th of 1959 and then the track naima was recorded on december 2nd of that year um, the initial s- recording of this album was two weeks after John Coltrane's final ses- recording session uh, with Miles Davis on Kind of Blue. So one of the things I'm going to talk about is kind of the compare and contrast of Giant Steps versus Kind of Blue because they're very different albums and, and John Coltrane played on both. Um, this was 
John Coltrane's uh, first album under Atlantic uh, with his new contract and his fifth studio album overall. This album exemplifies the sheets of sound concept that we talked about before, uh, which as a reminder is the improvisational style of jazz that Coltrane brought to jazz and and really transformed um, jazz or at least took it in a new direction. Um, And I know John joked about there being last week there being more heroin um on this album but as a <laughs> reminder coltrane had already quit drugs by this point so this is a heroin free free album and free zone um this week did I he go back to the heroin no he never, he never did he never he did okay yep. good good he um, did not make it out of the 60s did he if i remember correctly no he died young yeah, yeah. um so there and I'm not going to get, we're not going to talk history really um, of John Coltrane because we did that back in episode nine. Please listen to that to get the full um, scope of him up to this point. Um, this uh, recording crew is really two different, two different groups of artists. We have uh, John Coltrane on both, on all the groups, obviously, but um, Tommy Flanagan was on piano and Paul Chambers was on bass and Art Taylor was on drums for some of the tracks. And then uh, it was Coltrane, Paul Chambers, um, Winton Kelly was played the piano on Naima, and Jimmy Cobb played drums on Naima. Um, both of those guys were members of the Miles Davis court, kind of blue quartet. So that was a reunion of sorts when they re-recorded that. Um, you also have uh, appearances by Cedar Walton and Lex Humphreys, who played piano and drums on um, alternate versions of Giant Steps and Naima, which uh, you can listen to if you're interested. The, the title track, Giant Steps, is really important in jazz history. It's become a piece of jazz that jazz edu- uh, people in jazz education programs study and is often considered a rite of passage for aspiring horn players to be able to improvise over the chord pro- progressions in Giant Steps. Um, Giant Steps and Countdown, another track on this album, both are extremely fast and their tempos are at 290 and 340 beats per minute, um, switching keys roughly every two beats. And then a couple of other um, interesting uh, factoids about on this album, uh, the Cousin Mary song is is dedicated to his cousin Mary Alexander. Saida's flute song is named after his stepdaughter. And the song Naima is named after his first wife, Juanita Naima Grubbs. Uh, the final track is called Mr. PC, and that's named after the bass player Paul Chambers. Was not, it politically correct? It was not politically correct. It was Paul was Chambers. Was that even a term back then? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Um, so... Back to what I was saying about the contrast between Kind of Blue and and Giant Steps. Uh, kind of Blue is very minimalist if you listen to to it, and, and a lot slower and and more moody, I would say, than Giant Steps is. Giant Steps is packed with notes. It's energetic. There's different, um, I would say, different styles of jazz or sounds of jazz on here, and there's also a lot of there's just a lot going on um this is his album um, all the tracks on this album are originals um, versus when we talked about my favorite things those were all covers so you really get the full scope of 
John Coltrane's talent here. Um, I did read or tried to read a little bit about kind of the technical aspects of Giant Steps and, and the album and why it's important. But when you start, or at least for me, when I'm reading about music terminology, it's like reading a foreign language. I, I have no like understanding or even basic understanding of anything of that they're talking about. So um, for all of you uh, that are interested, you can go out and search that out. But um, but Josh, you did say, you said earlier that what they they're, they're, every two beats they're changing keys. Yeah, that's what I. That's read. crazy. Well, and you can hear it too because I mean you you can't miss Coltrane's style of saxophone in yep. this. It it's yeah, and it's it's up down. It's fast. He's running scales. Um, yeah, it just does seem like it almost was. <laughs> It almost was designed to be learned by aspiring jazz musicians in an, and musicians, for that matter, in another era, which obviously it wasn't. But um, I think I don't know too many people who study music who don't love this album. Right. Another interesting thing, there's 26 chord changes in the 16 bar theme of, of Giant Steps. Um, and the, the famous uh, Coltrane changes are also featured on this album. Um, those are chord progression variations that he, I guess, popularized or at least, uh, I don't know if he invented. I think he invented them, basically, which is why they're named Coltrane, Coltrane changes. Don't they, um, they call them angular sometimes, if I remember correctly. And the idea is that they go up on an angle and then down on an angle, right? So Yeah, there's something, people. too, about pen, the pentatonic scale or something that I read. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of my element, as they say in a, a Big Lebowski. But um, what did you, what did you guys think of this? I know we always, we always talk about the challenge of talking about jazz, but what did you think of this album? I've been doing a lot of my homework on jazz and trying to listen to a lot more of it to put it in reference. But I would say this is the first, even more so than my favorite things. This was the first jazz album that we've done that sounded very familiar. Um, Mm -hmm. I could recognize all the parts in the jazz early, um, whether it be the piano or Coltrane's saxophone. It was it was very clear. Remember how we kind of talked about not being able to, for example, pull out what Dolphy's sound sounded like or Sanders. Right. We only knew it from reading about it. I, I think now I'm at the point where if I were to hear a track and hear a John Coltrane saxophone part, I'd either know it was him or someone playing him. Um, because it is a very that's that angular I talked about before the up and down just the the frantic fastness of it um, and then the compositions themselves with like the free jazz there's the space and then the frantic playing but there's just something very um, there's just something very disciplined about his style that got loosened later with say a Pharaoh Sanders or uh, Dolphy, like we talked about, and even later Miles Davis. Uh, and you can see, like you mentioned with Miles Davis, the the sparseness of the... You would never say this this album is sparse um, because Definitely when not. Coltrane comes in or the piano comes in, it it hits and it hits well. And the, the drumming is done, um, not to use an over <laughs> overused word, but it's it's a very tasteful drumming. It, it supplements what's going on and you have to kind of listen for it but when you hear it, it's impossible to not hear it anymore. Um, but but you have to know to listen for it because that's the, the purpose of it, right? And that's how I'd describe it. it. It almost sort of puts the color by numbers on the broad strokes that are the piano, 
and the saxophone. So I really enjoyed this album a whole lot. And to think that this was made in 1960, you could almost feel modern jazz, which is, I think, the jazz we identify as the jazz we know best being created, which was kind of cool to listen to. Yeah, I would say um, what's stood out to me immediately as you know with this album compared to uh my favorite things is is the pace is just how it's it's much faster right and mm-hmm. certainly if you know kind no no kind of blue it's it's it is it's it's much different than that um so uh it, yeah it's more upbeat right it's it's kind of uh it, it, it hits you a little bit more and gets your attention very right off the bat and most of the album is like that i think there might be a track or two towards the end that's a little bit on the slower side but for the most part it kind of once it once it hits you with that with that speed and that energy it doesn't really let go too much of it um i i agree john i i i try to do a little bit of this with this album that you had mentioned i think maybe maybe it was eric dolphy or it was another jazz record that you talked about specifically listening i'm listening to this album right now and i'm just listening to this instrument or this this part Mm -hmm. um I, i i can't say that i did that exclusively with this album but there were parts where i'm like you know let me just do that for this little part of this track or for this entire track and mm-hmm. i did i did notice the drums right because the drums are a they're in they're in the background mm-hmm. you know we talked about keith moon and how, how how hard he beat the drums right this guy's not they're not doing that here um obviously right and they're but, out front in the who too by the design right. and the production yeah exactly here. And, and this is like the opposite of that but when you but when you pay attention to them the intricacies of the stuff that they're doing and the guy, you know, it's just, it's, it's very interesting, right. To listen to a jazz drummer drum like this. Um, it's definitely unique to that genre. Um, and it's impressive. It doesn't sound like it's an easy thing to do. Um, so I, I, I did like listening to that. I, I will say it's still, I, I still don't feel like I am (laughs) knowledgeable enough in, in jazz in general to really, really differentiate you know i'm still having that issue with you know trying to you know be able to pick out one thing versus another i think you know a coltrane's making a little bit more sense to me you know in terms of his his sound right but there's plenty of other saxophone players that i i, I don't know like i don't really i haven't really listened to a whole lot of charlie parker right so he's kind of one of the other main you know quintessential saxophone players um you know i know we did eric dolphy but that's that's just totally different right it's not that's not so much because well of saxo, it's 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 everything with Dolphy. That right. that was just almost a different genre of music altogether. So um, to get a little music geeky, I think one thing that because I, I I delved into like what is it that I can recognize Coltrane's playing of the sax compared to say Pharaoh Tom or Pharaoh Sanders, right? Mm-hmm. Which who also plays it, and I was able to identify that what I was hearing is that he plays those fast chord progressions and in between it he separates them with what are called major thirds and that's the note that you hear in between him running the scales so and that's why i've learned when i'm listening to jazz what i do is when i listen to it i i identify the the instrument i want to hear and i listen to it throughout that album and then the next time i listen to it i listen for a different instrument and then what i find is that once i've listened to those instruments then i'm able to piece together the whole listen and it's hard because a lot of times there's like six or seven different instruments right so you're really saying you got to listen to this six or seven different times right um and i'm not always going to do that but i find that really helps because when you know what everything's doing especially thinking that all of this is always improv right can you imagine having to be his pianist or the drummer or anybody in his band with him improvising these ridiculous hmm. you know 26 you know 
uh, note pieces. It must have been insane to be in the band. Yeah, I mean, that's a testament to how talented all those guys are because the fact that they can just keep up with that or, you know, adjust on the fly is is incredible. Um, Go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, I always wonder, this got me thinking, like, when these songs are written down, is there, like, a bass, uh, you know, version of the song and then the improvisational stuff is not written down and it's just all that just changes every time they play the song or or is there is there a bass improvisation that's also written down when he wrote these songs that i don't i don't have an answer for that i'm asking you guys or or the, the i was i was just about to ask the same thing because when yeah. you talk about these are these are originals as opposed to my favorite things which were all yeah you know uh arrangements of or covers if you can even call them covers um probably more different arrangements is more like it but yeah it's like at what point is what do you what is he writing down right, right. what is the structure and some parts you can kind of do because he kind of revisits certain patterns so that you certainly that. is part of it but is that it is it just like a couple of parts and then it's like all right guys so then you know you're going to do a solo here we're going to go this here look for me for the change here and boom 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 like it doesn't seem like a whole lot of this is actually written down but john i don't know if you have done more have more not insight into that I don't, like I said, I, a lot of what I, I do is I'll hear things and then I'll kind of dig back because I don't have the, the music background in terms of the technical nature, but I'm starting to put two and two together. Like, for example, uh, the, the two five one progression is one of the most common progressions in all of music, but especially jazz. And that is something that Coltrane uses for, uh, we've, I've noticed in both of his albums so far. I'll be interested to see when we do a Love Supreme, if it still stays. I'm sure it will, because you would recognize it right away. And I'm going to um, post something on, at Combing The, on Twitter, that shows that 2-5-1 progression. But what does that mean? Um, what does 2-5-1 mean? It's the notes themselves, and it's the sliding... Um, it was described to me by someone who would know as, think of it this way, um, cadence, and I, I don't want this to be too deep, but here's the best way to describe it. Weaker cadences are like commas, and stronger cadences are like periods. So you start, and then you put the weaker cadences in, and you build to a stronger cadence, and it stops. And then you start again with a piece, and then you do the weaker cadence, and then it builds up. So like... And that's how Coltrane plays those long string of notes, if you notice. There's little ups and downs inside of it, but he's still playing ridiculously fast. And so it sounds like he's constantly going up the scale because it's so fast, but when you listen to it more carefully, he's just playing two, five, one progressions. And what it sounds like going up is just five, the five note played faster. It's like I said, it's very dense. Yeah, um, I think but, I got about fifteen yeah. percent of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's not because of you. It's I. But I, I'm I'm starting just to see that there's I think, and I have some, some very you know musical knowledge. I did you know I I took a theory class and I did you know play in a band and stuff like that. So so some terminology makes sense. But it's also it seems like we're getting with jazz in particular. It seems like it's getting a lot more academic, a lot more textbook, a lot more you know. Um, and I, you could probably, I guess you could say that with, with probably more rock and pop music because it's all, it, it's, it's all that, you know, um, you know, music's all coming from the same places, but it just seems with jazz, because first of all, it's pretty much all instrumental, right? I mean, you have some singers and stuff like that, but the majority of like the jazz that we're talking about here is, is, is instrumental and a lot of it's improvised and, um, it, it just seems like there's more, it's, it's more complex, um, 
and uh, you know it's and again maybe that's it maybe my attention span is such that I'm just gonna it, that this is going to be a genre for me that is that I that I'm fine with that I like as long as it's not you know I don't think I like the avant-garde stuff um, I don't, that's not I can't ever see myself like actively why would I want to listen to this it's almost like you know, I, the, the same thing with like horror movies. Like, why do I want to go be terrified for two and a half hours? I'm going to go, you know, that's not right. a fun experience for me. But, but I, um, but I, I find but that I, I appreciate those more as I listen to Coltrane. I'm glad yeah. we started with that stuff because I think if I had gotten to it later, I might not have appreciated the way we listened to it was interesting because we got the complex stuff and now it's sort of like looking at the ingredients list, right? Right. Yeah. And for those listeners that are, curious about this album it is i find it an enjoyable listen um mm-hmm. or at least a you know it's not challenging in the way that some of the other jazz albums that we've listened to are it's i find it you could put it on in the background and and you know what am i trying to say it's not like industrial music or something like that it's it's you can you can recognize patterns and there's some really good well, solos in this album too and um, you can pick those things out like John was saying. Well, and the reason it's so familiar, I think, to you guys is because this has basically been the standard for people playing modern jazz improvisation. They basically, once you start to become a jazz musician, it's like, okay, can you play Giant Steps? Mm-hmm. And so because of that, it's so highly influential that for jazz, it's sort of... It's in some ways, it's kind of like when you listen to like Satisfaction by the Stones or My Generation by the Who or some of the Beatles stuff, and and basically everything builds off of these things to later that R and B bass. Um, that's kind of what Giant Steps is for jazz, from my understanding, and kind of it's like you you cross the threshold into becoming a good player in um, jazz if you can take the basic progressions from giant steps and do your own improvisations or play Coltrane's improvisations at a solid level. Mm. Well, yeah. I, I think too, when, cause jazz is not, you can't really say it's a popular genre, right? That it's something that's, that's top of the charts and it's, it's really well known and really and, and consumed, but when it is, you know, when it does seep into pop culture, when it, when it, when you are exposed to it a lot of times through like movies or TV, you know, it's stuff like it's, you know, Stuff like this, you know, these Coltrane albums that we're listening to, that's the type. That's where that familiarity comes from. It's like, oh, okay, you know, this is this is a sound that you might you might see in a movie that's kind of set like this, or even in a you might even be in a restaurant or a bar yourself or something, and, and you're hearing something like this, you know. And and I think for me, a lot of and maybe for a lot of other people too, that it, it ends up being it's nice. It's background music, right? It's a nice. It's a comfort. It's like a a calming thing, or it's it's something that kind of pep you up a little bit, um, you know. But I think that if you do decide to do something more like what you're doing john is like being that focused a laser focus on what's going on with this instrument let me listen to this entire record just focusing here and then maybe seeing how they all play together and then you're now you're going to you know five one two or whatever <laughs> whatever the time you know whatever, well, whatever those are it's it's it, there's so much more involved in it and i can see people getting really into it but it's, it does seem like it's a it's it's a laborious uh activity it, but see, I would say here's what you could do as a task if you want to kind of do an academic exercise that doesn't feel like an academic exercise. Remember we talked about arpeggios before and I gave the example of like Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven and the Star Spangled Banner like that, you know, dun, 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 dun. like Coltrane is doing that in his sax all over this. That's part of that sheets of sound. Right. But I think you have to listen to people not as talented 
as Coltrane play arpeggios to appreciate how freaking good yeah. John Coltrane and his pianist are at playing arpeggios. So once you hear people playing arpeggi- arpeggios um, satisfactory level or even very good, and then you hear him, you go, oh, shit, okay, that's the virtuoso playing that we talk about. And that's really what allowed me to appreciate Eric Dolphy because I was like, wow, okay, now I'm starting to see how he plays his instrument and what he can do compared to the average person. And you joked a little bit about you know, Kenny G playing the sax, and he's a very good sax player, but the difference between that background music style he plays and like the virtuoso style of these guys in the 60s free jazz i think there is a very clear the more you listen to jazz the more you can get it well i'm sure that that comes out yeah i'd love to dig back into like thelonious monk and miles davis and i might even do that on my own time just to kind of keep working backwards to see where it came from but i'm now i think able to identify john coltrane as a virtuoso from doing some homework and it's not for everybody. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you have to do it, but um, it can come if you listen to it enough. Well, I, I played arpeggios in band and I was really shitty at them. So I, <laughs> I could definitely say that he is better at playing those than I am. I don't even remember what they were exactly or like what, defi- what, what, you know, d- d- defined it's an broken, arpeggio versus a broken scale, chords, you man, know? broken chords. So, yep. but uh, yeah, but it's um, no, I, I like it, and I think I, would you say, John, that um, you know, that's something that you do sometimes with other with just rock music or other popular music is no. that let me focus on the guitar, let me focus on the bass. Uh, I should actually I should amend that. I was going to say no, but sometimes I do. It depends on the band. Uh, I don't do it consciously though. I think it'll just like um, Sly and the Family Stone. The first listen, I listened to all of it, but I mean, how could you? I definitely could have listened to that album for just the bass lines and just mm. listened to them because they were. Fascinating, and I do find that bass and drums in traditional rock music are where, when I get into an album and just listen to it, that's where I go. But I will say that with jazz, I kind of knew going in that I was going to have to take an academic view on it, and so I've started. And I knew we were going to get a lot of jazz in a in a small period of time, so I really have tried to commit to to doing the listen that way. We're not doing any jazz after the '60s, are we? I don't think no. so. Kind of dies. I think, uh, I think there's a Miles Davis album in the oh, 70s. Oh, there is. There's Bitches yeah. Brew in, the, is, mm-hmm. is in like 1970. Brew, yep. But we're not getting mm-hmm. like any Wynton Marsalis or anything like that. You know, like that's no, not, and at that, some point. And that's know, the that, thing. Jazz kind of fell off the cultural touchstone as popular yeah. music, right? You know, when the 70s came, which is kind of fascinating in its own right. Is that going like to be rock in like 20 years? Is rock going to totally... Actually, well, it is. Might be yeah. even, even it is. Now. It's what it is now. That's what I was yeah. going to go to. I was going to yeah. kind of say, it's kind of like what's happened to rock in the last 10 years. It's well, now become yeah. an archive type of music that exists, but exists for people that remember the classics and still play it, but in a much more underground version. Yeah, jazz became more academic in some respects too, or that's what happened. Uh, people that were really into it took it to an extreme level and then it yep. became less popular so and that is not what happened to rock i would argue yeah rock i i just think rock got fused right into different things and became yeah yeah th- that's yeah. a whole different conversation and probably like probably time. like rock you know jazz is still i mean they're both still out there it's not like people stop playing it's like there's plenty right. of musicians right. that are doing this and really into it and there's fans that are really into it but it's not it's not hitting any of the major charts or, you know, uh, pop culture or anything like that. It's just kind of, it's there. It's there if you want to seek it out, but it's not in your face. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that sounds like a good point to end it on for this episode. I think so. I'd we recommend more Coltrane, this album. right? We got one. Was it one more Coltrane coming up? Yeah, Love Supreme. We're gonna cover that as well. Right on. Yep. So you get so the I'd... whole you get the whole breadth of a uh, well, a good representation of Coltrane at least. Yeah, we'll be able to have comparison pieces, which I think will be nice because uh, I haven't given it a full listen yet. But I've I've definitely heard a Love Supreme is well, different let's, in well, some ways. Before we go, let's let's compare these two. Do you, do you guys have a preference of one over the other? I mean, John, you kind of alluded to that maybe a little bit. I enjoyed this, this one, one more than I enjoyed my favorite things, um, and I think that's because it's original compositions. And I felt, you know, not not to make a a, a poor reference right here, but the, this is like <laughs> this is like the pure version of John Coltrane. I know heroin references with Coltrane are dicey, but like if the other one was just him doing virtuoso play on, playing on other people's stuff, this is what it sounds like when he's improving. And so I did prefer this style. Yeah, I, I preferred this as well. Um, it's it's a nice comparison piece to my favorite things though. You can see where his improvisation comes into play um, mm. on any on a song you recognize. That's a good that's a good entry point. Yeah, and I'd say I'd slightly prefer this. I do like I do like it a little bit more upbeat, but um, but it's not very much. Like I really enjoyed the other one as well, and you know just in general. And maybe you know it'd be different if I if I was much more focused in listening um but i there wasn't too much of a difference for me in terms of just my overall enjoyment now that's clearly different they're doing he's doing different things and there's different um structures and whatnot but um my overall enjoyment i can't i can't really differentiate too much between the two maybe this one just a little bit better because of the uh more of the upbeat nature of it but yeah yeah Hmm. okay all right. Well, I think that's going to that's gonna end our review section of the show. Um, I will ask you to stay on at the end so you can listen to all of our various platforms as well as our Twitter. Uh, and we're working on some other exciting stuff that should be coming soon in terms of things like a YouTube channel and maybe even a website. So, um, in fact, I haven't even really talked about that with the other guys on the thing, but they're, they're coming. News to me. <laughs> they're, they're, they're coming down the road. But what is, what is uh, also coming down the road next week is the three albums we're going to cover next week. Uh, the first one is going to be Safe as Milk by Captain Beefheart and his magic band. We did Zappa before, and this is another person sort of in his realm. That's going to be Josh covering that. I will be covering Chelsea Girl by Nico of Velvet Underground and Nico fame. Um, and then Matt is going to be going back to the trusted and tried Bob Dylan. Uh, the times, they are a change in my friend. And this is definitely a different era of Dylan than what we've covered before. So that should be a lively and spirited conversation uh any final thoughts before we sign off guys <laughs> i don't think so i think uh i think we've covered it i again if we're looking at three records that i really don't know well and even the dylan album i don't know that well because that was not we haven't really hit the dylan albums that i'm really familiar with yet so uh it'll be some new stuff for me listeners let me know what your four favorite herbs are I'm curious <laughs> <laughs> yes please email that or post actually even better post it on our twitter as feedback in fact i might pose that question on our twitter and hopefully both listeners and randos uh via that one so nice. Josh, they have to have the same syllable count as parsley sage romarian time so it could be in so it could be substituted with no, that the, simon and garfunkel song i mean if you... somebody wants to you know write their own version of the song with their herbs that would be great but oh even better yeah but even I'm, better. I'm more just curious with, what you what people's palates are like oh okay with, with arpeggios as well in your composition <laughs> yeah. so. josh that'll be a good that'll be a good addendum to your uh your cooking podcast yeah 
cooking with Josh. And <laughs> and with those sterling one-liners right there, I think we're going to end the show for this week. Uh, for John, Josh, and uh, for uh, excuse me, for Matt and Josh, this is John signing off. We will see you next week. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song, Coastin', as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night!